Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Plains on the Prairie podcast. I'm Max. And I'm Sam. And today we are on to episode two of our North Dakota Aces series. Um, if you didn't catch it last week, uh, maybe not every week, but um, uh, we're going to try to focus on a different North Dakota Ace um, every other week or so if we don't have a big event coming up. And uh, Sam, I know you did a ton of research on today's Ace. Do you want to talk a little bit about him? Yeah, so we'll be shifting over from Western Europe over to the Pacific now. So we'll be talking about Francis Register, who had seven confirmed kills from Bismarck, North Dakota. So this is, uh, we talked about this in the last episode about how diverse this group of nine pilots is. For only being nine pilots, it's very spread on the type of action they saw in what theater, what time of the war. So And I, I remember from talking before this, we started rolling. Um, I, I'm curious how many of these pilots were in the service before Pearl Harbor. A lot of the early war ones pilots were like uh, mm-hmm. Coral Sea, Guadalcanal, Midway. They were all post Pearl Harbor grads. Yeah. So register. He was born on uh, November 15th, 1917 in, in Bismarck. So yeah, he was a little on the older side by the time the war started. He was, you know, 24 old for the time. Yeah, old for the time. So, Absolutely. so yeah, he's 24 when he joined up, or not even 24, 23 when he joined up in February 1941. Uh, did his training at Pensacola like pretty much everybody else in the Navy did. And uh, actually got his wings uh, five days after Pearl Harbor on the 12th. Really? Yep, 1941. Wow. So he saw some of those yellow wings. Yeah, yeah. Think oh, that, your yeah. favorite. <laughs> yeah, get me going here. So, Sam, quick question. So he didn't have any flying experience prior to nothing as far as i gathered i okay. did find while researching here a, a pretty extensive amount of research um so i'll be referencing his wartime diary it's not like a full encompassing but he does mostly talk about his training and uh all of his time at guadalcanal at henderson field so it's a really really good read i highly recommend um, checking out the link we'll post Absolutely. in the in the yeah, description we'll, we'll of this and the audience know and we'll share it we'll share the link on facebook as well individually because it's just it's a cool story and it really humanizes the effect of the war a lot of people like to read about just the overviews and stuff which is fine i i do it myself but like we were talking before the podcast i'm as you know i'm those of you who listen know us i'm quite the reader every other book i read is a memoir and for every overview or insight basically on the macro scale of the war. So I like to like to see these humanizing Absolutely. stories in this. And so I'll be referencing his time in there a lot while sifting through, you know, research material. I found a Prairie public article and in that Prairie public article, they referenced a book. So I did order a book that's a, a, a biography of register. So, you know, maybe we'll part two this or something, or <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll include it some other time is I'll probably find a good wealth of yeah, information absolutely. will be way in depth. And, but today this will plenty suffice. Our last episode is 25 minutes. So we'll see how many tangents we get on here. Um, <laughs> Hopefully a couple. I, I feel you like you guys don't mind. We will, these will be slightly longer than our short yeah. format. I mean, they won't be an hour long, but it, a little bo- bit more, 
more hard. You know, the one that you yep. want to sit down and just kind of focus on. Like I know we're going to be getting into Sam's bread and butter here with the history of a couple of different early Navy squadrons and some of those, mm-hmm. as you mentioned earlier, some of those yellow wings that yep. Sam absolutely loves. So you're definitely not going to want to miss this one. But right. Yeah. Let's get back to it here. So um, register. He, you said he got his wings five days after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So he was ship, shifting through that uh, training right as the war clouds are forming. I mean, well, you know, pre us involvement in the war Churchill and many others were like, Hey, let's, can you guys, you know, we're lend leasing and all that, but we were inching closer and closer. We weren't, we were kind of that active one-sided neutrality. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call us completely neutral. I mean, people may argue that, but in reality, we weren't, we were we were shifting towards that focus so there was an increased recruitment in 4041 for sure mm-hmm. but yeah he was initially assigned to vf3 and then vf6 we'll talk a little bit more about the squadron histories later on a little bit a little bit of a confusing history there that we'll mm-hmm. clear up in a little bit between the two numbers um primarily he was aboard the uss saratoga and enterprise during his combat combat times uh and he mostly saw action over the Solomons, Guadalcanal, being based as part of the Cactus Air Force in Guadalcanal. So cool. um, the Cactus Air Force was a contingent on Henderson Field. So just a brief, hopefully brief, overview <laughs> of Guadalcanal. So basically, it was Japanese-held initially. Uh, the Pacific campaign itself was an island-hopping campaign. It was... You know, we're going to bypass certain islands such as Rabaul and others uh, and kind of strike the more strategic kind of not every single island is going to be liberated, but hopefully the attrition is high enough for the Japanese, which in in the end it did work, right? I mean, we're all speaking English today and Japan's our our ally now, so (laughs) it it all worked anyways. So spoiler alert there, but... Um, but anyways, there was a small contingent of Japanese uh, troops there, and they were scouting out an airfield. They cleared a path, and it was a very rugged strip at first. What turned into Henderson Field, though, when the U.S. landed, they had air, you know, fighter sweeps, ground attack. They just they did really well in the first couple of days of Guadalcanal on the landings. They supported it. The supply train was a little iffy for the troops. Uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but um, yeah, they, they did well at the beginning and, and well enough to start basing Marine and Naval fighter squadrons on Henderson. So yes, he was at first aboard the Saratoga and enterprise um, enterprise took some hits and ended up having to go back for um, repairs back, back East towards the United States. And um, he ended up being on cactus for a long time. Yeah. So can you mention real quick, where does the name Cactus Air Force come so from? So Cactus was the code name for Guadalcanal, for okay. Henderson. Gotcha. Um, and and well, Guadalcanal, for the most part, was just nicknamed Cactus. We had code words for a lot of, a lot of uh, different targets and objectives back in the day to try to fool, you know, the translators and stuff and, and decoders. But yeah, Cactus is Guadalcanal. Gotcha. So it just okay. ended up catching on as the Cactus Air Force. Has a nice ring to it. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of cacti in, yeah, uh, in, in the Pacific, South Pacific. But, <laughs> but yeah, he uh, was initially stationed there. It was most of most of the info we're going to cover today is Guadalcanal. Gotcha. Um, and 
the landing started in early August. Um, August 7th, I believe, was the first day of Guadalcanal in 1942. Um, and his first victory came a few weeks later on uh, August 24th, 1942, where he shot down a zero. So a wildcat versus a zero. Um, that's... So we can talk a little bit about that if that's okay with you. Yeah, please. So the wildcat is not the most maneuverable plane. The zero. It's you know, the Hellcat, or excuse me, the wildcat is more rugged. Rugged and self-sealing is... fuel tanks. Yeah. Um, everything the zero was not. Uh, so it all boiled down to the pilot. You know, you couldn't get into a turning fight with the zero, just like pretty much any other American fighter at the time, you know, P-40s, P-39s. All those they couldn't really get involved with a yeah. with a dog dogfight. So this zero that he was engaging, I don't know if you found it in your research. Um, would it have been from a Japanese land based squadron, or th- would this have been probably a carrier based zero? It was a land based zero from, I believe, either Rabaul or Bougainville. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, they were all land based contingents at the. Uh, at the beginning of the campaign and then a couple of their carriers kind of came south from from truck one of their major central pacific yeah central pacific bases but um yeah his first kill came then and then uh later on he uh became north dakota's first ace a month a little over a month later on september 27th he shot down four japanese aircraft in a day in a day so almost oh, as good as Bloomer. I was gonna but, say, what is it with these North Dakota aces and no one's getting yeah, and aces not, in a day? And this isn't know. dogging the Western front of Europe or anything, not showing any bias here, but um at this time in the war, it wasn't one at all. We were the US was living living in fear still because that Pearl Harbor wound was very fresh. Uh, and we were just getting our foot, you know, our footing in, in the Pacific air superiority was not ours mm-hmm. so it's just impressive you know especially um considering just the supply issues and and whatnot i was gonna say another thing that we tend to forget or maybe overlook because I, I think the united states was so enamored by the kamikaze that we thought why would we sacrifice or why would a pilot sacrifice their life we have to remember that, you know, this is 1945. In 1942, before all those tactics, the Japanese had how almost a decade of combat under their belts in China. Right. Uh, starting with Manchuria yeah. in 31. And yeah, they, they were hardened. They so had some, some of those pilots. Japanese pilots had seen almost a decade of combat in the air. So they yeah, some of them very well could have. Yeah. yeah. At least from 1937 in, in the Sino-Japanese War. Yeah, it's just it's insane. Um, but yeah, the the Japanese at that time were just seen as, you know, they swept across, you know, Southeast Asia into the, all the islands, took over Singapore, Java, Sumatra, Malaya, all those in the matter of six months. And it's just it's crazy that you know they attacked Darwin, Australia, not too long before the Guadalcanal landings. It wasn't a one war at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we had Midway had turned the tide a little bit. We had Coral Sea a little earlier on that made us feel good, but that war was still it was, it was still two sided. Yep. Yeah. So, reading through his uh, diary entries was really interesting. As like I said, it really humanized the aspect of Guadalcanal. Yeah. Um, I'm reading another book um, about Guadalcanal called Fighter Squadron at Guadalcanal about the Marines right now uh, about VMF 212, and it also kind of shows that humanizing factor, but 
Absolutely. The, Were there any um, like blurbs or anything from this diary that really stuck out with you about the fighting on Guadalcanal? Every, I mean, how it was put was as the entries went on, as he racked up his kills, he wasn't, he was proud of what he did. He wasn't cocky. It, I didn't get a lick of cockiness out of him. It was more, I'm doing my job. You know, my friends are here. I'm I'm protecting my friends. What I got from it was, you know, consistently was, you know, that sobering aspect of combat where he's talking about, okay, his friend got in an accident or got shot down and lost them. Or there's other good ones where they had a Grumman Duck, um, you know, amphib biplane there. And that uh, was used to pick up down survivors. And he would constantly volunteer for those patrols to help his down friends and other to squadron the duck or to escort, escort. Oh, he would escort the awesome. duck that's and awesome. they would help fly those patrols in order to just look as well at while escorting this man flew almost every day and it was just insane to see that because he you know you'll find you'll read in his excerpts here he's just wearing out you mm -hmm. can just tell by the language not you know we're not seeing him in that point but people routinely lost 30 plus pounds because the supply chain was an issue there um you know food wasn't coming in japanese were harassing daily so you know things had to be shipped at night the japanese were landing thousands of troops a week on guadalcanal you know, so it was, was a, they were taking it, off from an active war zone. Exactly. Like, yeah, within miles, oh we, they gosh. held a very small perimeter, and it's just it's just yeah, the supply chain was nothing, and it's just it was a war of attrition on a micro scale, and it was just a hard fought battle, not from the Japanese perspective, just alone, but they were hungry, they were getting sick, their malaria was an issue. Uh, in his diary, I think there's two or three times where he's in the hospital from just dizzy spells and just being worn out. So it's just the people on Guadalcanal, not, you know, the pilots alone did a lot, but you know, mm -hmm. the Marines just imagine being a ground troop there. Yeah. Um, but one, the, I guess to answer your question in the long form here, <laughs> um, one thing that stuck out, stuck out for me, but was, uh, basically how, he was tired, but Marines, you know, that he ran into were thanking him. They were, they were the, the pilots provided morale boosts for the ground troops. And he basically in his own words said, this is what I'm here for. I mean, he's here to serve his country, but seeing that just and reading yeah. that just kind of, kind of sat with me pretty Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And, you know, you're talking about that. I can see it. It's, you know, that's something that's super passionate for you, Sam. And yeah. the more I think about it, you know, we had guys like register, right. Flying in these missions on Guadalcanal, the 164th infantry regiment mm -hmm. of the North Dakota army national guard was the first army unit to go into combat against the Japanese or to any access right. powers at that point. So, you know, it's the Battle of Guadalcanal shouldn't be underestimated in the annals of North Dakota history. No. North Dakota blood has been spilled there. You know, guys like Register and the men of the 164th, they put their heart and soul into that combat. And mm -hmm. I mean, just by the way you're describing, it, it's almost making me 
bring to tears just how miserable those combat conditions were. And it was all for a great cause. I mean, it's just, but yeah, he, he gave a lot. He was, he had a lot of mechanical issues that could have brought him down. He had one engine failure where he was able to basically bring it back into the Henderson, but it's just really cool to hear an individual story. I've read plenty of overview accounts recently on Guadalcanal. This one I'm reading right now, I'm only 30, 40 pages through, but it's, it feels like I'm reading his diary. Absolutely. And yeah, so he actually on, on October 1st, a few days after his, um, his four kill day, uh, no, you know, none other than Nimitz flew in on an R4D transport to, you know, see the conditions and stuff, which probably wasn't miserable. Yeah, yeah. Probably was very shocked by it alone, but he personally awarded register with the distinguished flying cross. And he was also up for nomination for the Navy cross, but I couldn't find anything up on that, but just to be in the, in front of Nimitz. So, yeah, you know, the commander the of the Supreme this, commander of the Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy. Wow. From Bismarck, North Dakota. Yep. And not to mention he was the first ace of North Dakota. That is true. Yep. Yes. And so nine twenty seven forty two. this is the earliest combat of any of, any of the people will cover 1942 that yeah to put that into perspective that's what may 1942 that's yeah. what five months six months after pearl harbor yeah and how quickly the united states got into combat and the ball rolling really fast yeah, yeah. i mean no torch kidding. was happening that summer as well over in the yep. mediterranean and Absolutely. it's just yeah it's crazy um and then unfortunately in 1943 he well I guess to backtrack here for a second, he, as I said, he was getting very weak, just like many other pilots, just the constant, you know, two, two months of flying. It wears down on you. I mean, I'm, I'm a professional pilot myself and I get tired after two weeks of everyday flying and I, but I'm not in combat. Right. So it's just imagine I could about, you know, just about imagine what they went through. Just, miserable. And then just to cap that off, poor sleep, poor health, or food, or food, losing friends. Food. It's just it's, everything's the weight of the world's on them. Exactly, and it's just it's amazing. He lasted two months. So then, just from his health standpoint, they grounded him on, uh, you know, no more than ten days after his award, and uh, he ended up going back on leave back to the states. Got to see his wife. He mentions his wife a lot in that in that diary, and that really hits you too. Mm-hmm. Just finding out what happened to him, and unfortunately. After he, after a while, he ended up getting transferred to the Aleutian campaign. And the Aleutian campaign is very, very well known um, by World War II historians about the weather. The Aleutian Islands are just in the middle, middle of the North Pacific, gloomy weather, basically picture England on steroids. He flew in some of the worst weather anybody can imagine. Um, and he was supporting ground troops on a two, which was one of the, um, Aleutian Islands occupied by the Japanese in the in 42. And unfortunately, while supporting his ground troops, he was flying in some bad weather, which was a just a given. Um, and he ended up crashing into a hillside and being killed. And um he wasn't brought back home until after the war in 1948, though. Mm-hmm. Just about imagine after reading that diary, it just was like makes it it's, sad. It is. Yeah. It's it, it's not a it's not a number. It's not a happy ending. No. And, Again, it's like you just said, it's not a number. These are real pilots, mm-hmm. real families that were affected by the losses of, you know, these men and women. Right. Well, and it's just, yeah, he, 
he'd had that had that tenacity where he's like i'm i'm serving my country and you know it's just with the times so when you read it just take note that you know that wound of pearl harbor is really fresh with all these people there's nothing like overly uh hatred there's no over hatred in it but just pay pay attention when you guys read these you know wartime contemporary accounts that you know there's going to be some colorful language yes some things that are pretty dated but just know that's just how the the public feel is i mean we as a society right now talk the same way as people 30 40 50 years ago are going to think wow they talked like cavemen back then well, but and then you know it hasn't changed we said the same terrible things about our enemies and mm-hmm. people that we thought you know were aligned with our enemies after exactly. Pearl harbor and we said the same things after the september 11th attacks yep and it's, it's all yeah. shifting yep. yep absolutely yeah that's pretty much the bio on register so now we'll talk a little bit about the two squadrons vf3 and vf6 um again they're a little confusing um <laughs> Navy Please squadrons. Elaborate. Yeah. Na- Navy squadrons are really confusing. I still. That's why yeah. I always focus on Air Force, just because it's a little easier to understand. We'll I get you. Get to, we'll Navy. get you to come around. Yeah. Um, yeah, they could teach a college level class on this. Um, <laughs> so I, hey, I'll be a TA for that one any day. <laughs> yeah. So we have VF six and VF six. Pretty confusing, right? That so sounds like the same squadron. So. Um, one was VF3. So we're going to talk about VF3, Fighting Squadron 3. Um, this is the oldest of the two. So for all intents and purposes, VF3 turned into VF6 after 1943. So I'm just going to call it VF3 for today and for to avoid confusion for you guys. Um, but it did swap names a lot. It's very chaotic. So VF3 was formed. Um, on September 23rd, 1921, one of the earliest squadrons, oh, Squadron yeah. 3. So, um, And it was called Combat Squadron 4 <laughs> aboard the USS Langley. And it was um, equipped with Vought V7 uh, trainers. And they also used as fighters. They were designed during World War One as just kind of a supplement to trainers. We talked, we haven't released the standard video yet on our YouTube channel, but the standard was a supplement to the Jenny this was another supplement to the Jenny oh, and a lesser known one. So they only built, according to my research, a little under 130 aircraft, but uh, the Navy used them and it actually was the, uh, it was the first aircraft to take off from us aircraft in a us aircraft carrier. Oh, and that's the USS Langley CV one, um, which by world war two was long phased out as an active carrier, yeah. uh, more used as a transport. Uh, and then here comes the confusing part. In 1927, it was redesignated, you guessed it, VF6, <laughs> uh, equipped with Vought FU1s. And they use those, they sprinkled those around. So they're equipped on battleships and destroyers um, as catapult based float fighters. Pretty cool. And then they're also, the rest of them were based at North Island, NAS oh, North Island. Yep. So. Getting into some Top Gun territory. <laughs> get the music going. Can you imagine Top Gun in 1926? <laughs> we could make an adaptation. I, I'd watch it. I don't know about many others. Maverick's but... great, great, great grandfather. Yes. Maybe not that. Everybody's either. talking fast. Yeah. The... <laughs> yeah, and then um, 19... 1930, 31, went back aboard Langley 
uh, flying with Boeing F-2Bs and F-3Bs, which were biplane fighters that later evolved into the F-4B, which was also Army-designated P-12, some oh, yeah. a little bit more well-known fighter than the F-3B and F-2B. Um, somewhere in 1937, they were redesignated VF-3 aboard the Saratoga, uh, Lexington, and Yorktown. They all transferred around. And, and they to f- clear up... Oh, I oh go ahead. Yeah. To clear up any can- confusion, we're talking the first Saratoga. Yes, the original Saratoga, and that survived the whole war. It did, yes, Yes. and it was sunk during the atomic test. I only only know a little bit about the Saratoga because my uncle served on the other Saratoga. The new one, yeah. The newer one, which unfortunately was also scrapped, but um, but yeah, sorry. And we're talking about the early carriers, so when I'm talking Saratoga, Lexington, Yorktown, the first iteration, so like CV2 for Lexington, CV3 for Yorktown. Yep. So, yeah, the Lexington and Yorktown both got sank during World War II. Uh, but they were equipped with F3F flying barrels in 1937. <laughs> so the the predecessor to the F4F, which it later was equipped with, you know, early on in the 40s, equipped with F4F3s and F4F4s. The difference between the two, the F4F3 didn't have folding wings, Uh there was an example at Oshkosh last year, which yeah. is really cool. We'll talk about that in a sec. But um, it was disbanded in 1945. A few of a few of their notable members were Butch O'Hare, um, John Thatch, which are a couple of the two. Yeah, those are the two. If, you know. I, I don't think there's a single, maybe not normie, if I'm allowed to use that word, <laughs> but. Um, I think anyone that calls himself a World War II buff should know oh. definitely Butch O'Hare. Yep, and the thatch for the thatch weave, the maneuver yep, that absolutely was really put to the test at Midway. But yep, um, so those are some notable members, um, and they were aboard those carriers pre-Midway, and then uh, the squadron was disbanded in '45, and there's no record of it coming back as a new iteration or anything gotcha. like that. Um, so that was the original squadron. He was posted to VF three. We're gonna call it VF three. It was later renamed VF six post nineteen forty three. Um, so then we have VF six, like pre nineteen forty three VF six, uh, which was established in nineteen thirty five as VF one B, and they're equipped with Boeing F four Bs. So that biplane fighter P twelve Army variant, if you're familiar. Then in 1937, things got normal and it was redesignated uh, VF-6. So they were equipped with F-3Fs up until they later were phased out and they were the F-3Fs later to get on a tangent here were brought into the training role around 1940. The Wildcats. And then they were turned in F-4F Wildcat. Excuse me. Yep. So then they were re-equipped with F-4F Wildcats later on with the Dash 3 and Dash 4 variants just like... um, VF three was um, during Guadalcanal. They were uh, served aboard the USS Enterprise, and that's where we'll see, uh, you know, um, where we would see Register flying off the Enterprise until it got hit and had to return back to Har- Pearl Harbor to mm-hmm. get repairs. Um, you know how long they were in Guadalcanal? They were there for the first month and a half, two months, and then it got yeah. torpedoed. Or- yep, and he transferred to a couple different carriers. Um, in his diary, he's aboard the Wasp before that got sank yeah, late yeah. late in August. It's a big name. The USS Wasp. He was aboard the Saratoga a little bit as well, just to kind of go back. He was very biased to the Big E because it was the newest of the ships, and it was yeah, it was the, yeah, newest it was the nicest. Yep. Um, and then some notable actions for this group. Uh, 
it's uh the vf6 served at midway prior um and then took part a lot in the battles eastern solomon's battles like like guadalcanal mm-hmm. um served in formosa okinawa later in the war oh, wow yep and uh they were in okinawa. yeah after the they were equipped with f6f so another interesting thing that stuck out or stuck out for me was um he was really looking forward to the addition of F6F Hellcats. They were in the testing phase and weren't quite in mm-hmm. combat yet in 42. So he was very excited for that. But yeah. And then post-war they're re- redesignated as VF31, which still exists now as VFA31. And they're currently equipped with FA18E Super Hornets. Awesome. So it's cool that at least, you know, one of his one of, squadrons yeah. is still actively flying today. Uh, yeah. And if we can get anybody from, the 31 squadron would be pretty <laughs> cool. Um, but yeah, that's uh Francis Register, really cool story. Unfortunately, didn't make it through the war. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, seven confirmed kills, one probable, and a damage to claim. And the first ace, the first true North ace Dakota. for North Dakota. That's yeah. awesome. And yeah, just a cool background with some really Absolutely. neat stories. And we'll yeah, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, and there's no wildcat. Or any of his aircraft no, existing? No, you can find Wildcats sprinkled around. I mean, at the O'Hare Airport, you can find an, an F-4 very, Wildcat. So that, that O'Hare Wildcat is in marking similar to it's his? It's more Coral Sea marking. So he flew aircraft like that prior. Guadalcanal, they got rid of the meat, the meatball and yep. the, the striped tail. Okay. Um, you could probably find one at Pensacola marked like this. I, I can't tell you where like one marks exactly right is. Um, they didn't quite get that deep into the research, yeah. but there are plenty of wildcats out there of the, you, if you're wanting to look for one similar to what he flew, you're going to want to look for the dash three and dash four variants, not the general motors FM twos. Um, getting a little nerdy here, but the FM two has a more narrow tail and it's taller. Eat your heart out, a airplane enthusiasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you ever want to talk shop, I'm I'm open. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But yeah, this uh, this was a fun one. Um, I yeah. really enjoyed researching it. Yeah, register is one of those. You know, I think in the last episode, Scrappy Bloomer is famous for his ace in a day, mm-hmm. and you know that's you know United States Air Force or Army Air Force wide like that was the fastest so that that's what i feel like put him on the map but with register like you said he was just a guy guy that signed up joined the the navy and got his wings you know yeah and like any other navels yeah he was an eager eager guy wanted to get in combat didn't really say no put his head down sounds like a true like that's how a lot of the work ethic is around here in north dakota you get out into the farms, the rural areas. Yeah. Everybody's just put your head down, and get to work, and, yeah. and it's so just there's no room for you know. He's a North Dakotan, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that that really kind of hits home. I'm not from North Dakota, but, but it hits your Midwest. You're yeah. close enough. I've spent eight honorary years of my North Dakotan. Yeah, you're legal <laughs> resident, right? So I hope far <laughs> country. <laughs> yeah, so we thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, I guess uh, by this time I'll have been in Canada. Uh, we recorded two of these episodes yeah. in one day just to kind of keep keep them rolling out. But we'll mm-hmm. we'll be covering seven more. We have a couple of interesting yes. ones. Oh, they're yeah. all interesting. We got they're, a couple. They're all really interesting. Weird. Got a couple of weird ones. There's a a few that I'm 
very much looking forward yes. to. Um, I think next episode we're going to be talking about Sam, your trip up to Canada, yep. seeing hopefully about that museum there, the uh, Canadian Military Museum. Yeah, so. and uh, I mentioned this I think in two episodes ago, but I'll be in Colorado at the uh, end of August. So um, if there's anything I should see or do while I'm out there, please leave a comment. Um, we read them all. We appreciate them all. And we appreciate you guys for tuning in. So with that being said, Sam, do you have any anything else? No, just uh, kind of capping on piggybacking on what you said there. Thanks for watching. Really appreciate all the all the feedback we get. I mean, really, we're we're not doing this for you know, profit or we don't anything. get a like, dime. We don't get this. a dime. We, we spend a lot of money, but we, we don't, we're not looking for anything like that. We just enjoy the conversation. Exactly. We, we get to talk to some really cool people, dive into some really, really cool information. And it's just a privilege. And I think at the end of the day, sharing the stories of these guys is I think the most rewarding thing we can it do. Is. Cause none of them, I don't think any of the aces are left. No. And no. It's just, you know, sharing it. their stories with you guys is awesome. So we'll leave it at that. Um, we'll see you next week and yeah, take it easy guys. Thank you. See ya.